you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24, where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev. He is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at 2nd and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Good morning, Pastor Kevin. And good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. Doing well. Uh, good morning to our listeners. Afternoon, evening, whenever you are tuning into our podcast. Uh, it's good to have you here. Um, we see that we're building a little following here, so we we hope that continues. We yeah, hope you we're are excited enjoying. about that. One of the one of the action points today is to subscribe. Yeah, to the podcast, give us a review. There you go, preferably a positive one, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, share it with your friends. Nice. You can now find us everywhere you find podcasts. So tell your friends. Um, we would love that, and we would love to hear some some feedback and some questions. Um, what you would like to hear. You have any suggestions um, on things that we can tweak? We're we're really looking to up our game on this. Yeah, we want to up our game, man. We want to get we want to get a following. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, it's very therapeutic for me to have an outlet just to talk. So, <laughs> so I appreciate that. We need a couch in this room so it can you can just lay yeah. back and I'll yeah. just sit there with a notebook. And all right. Well, uh, we are on episode number five here, and uh, we've because of uh, current events. Um, had some topics that we wanted to address with mass incarceration and the death penalty. Um, but today we wanted to drop back and lay some more foundational work. Tell us a little bit about uh, the plan for today's podcast. Yeah, the, the very first episode, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back and listen to it. And it just kind of lays some groundwork for where we're coming from. Um, and then, as you said, there was some uh, time-sensitive topics we had to talk about because of some current events going on. And, uh, and so I thought today we would back up again and uh, lay a little bit of more groundwork about uh, floods of justice and and uh, just a, some background of where where we're coming from and what I want to do today is I'm really and this is a this is a shameless plug uh, but I'm I'm looking at a, a couple chapters in a book that I wrote uh, evangelism for the 21st century and uh, the publishers contacted me to write this book because they really wanted me to write a couple of chapters on social justice and how that ties into evangelism and so in this book, um, there are two chapters on uh, social justice and evangelism, and so I'm just kind of going to use that as a background of a talk today, um, to, and it'll help us lay groundwork basically on what is social justice and why is it, and why is it so important. If you want a copy of the book, you can get it on Amazon or contact me if you want an autographed copy, and, and uh, uh, we can work out the details uh, on that. But it comes from, again, from um, evangelism for the 21st century. Great. And uh, so we have two kind of sections that we want to talk about today based on groups that, uh, that the Bible addresses. Um, can you tell us about this, uh, maybe the first group um, the, that we're going to address here today? Yeah, I want to get a little bit, little bit of background first, uh, but then um, basically the podcast will be, we'll look at four groups um, of marginalized people that the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about a whole lot. And those are really representative groups. They were the four... Well, there are two sections to the, the podcast today. Let's get started on the, the first one and kind of lay out the initial groundwork um, in this chapter, chapter 8 in your book, uh, Evangelism for the 21st Century. Where would you like to start? Well, just some background information on social justice in the Bible. Um, and for example, I start off the chapter just mentioning this stat that a lot of people aren't familiar with, but there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with social justice. 2000. Uh, someone has said if you took all the social justice verses out of the Bible, your Bibles would fall apart if you kind of cut those out. And so 2000 verses about social justice. And if you can, if you compare that with other topics in scripture, uh, there are approximately 550 Bible verses that talk about heaven, a thousand Bible verses that talk about hell. And there are less than 500 Bible verses that talk about tithing and giving. Um, and now we hear sermons on heaven and hell, and we should, and we hear sermons on, on tithing and giving, and we should. Uh, but very, 
very rarely do you hear sermons on social justice when, when the Bible talks about that far more than any other topic in Scripture. And, uh, and if you do a sermon on social justice, I know from experience, people then say, well, you're being too political. And it's like, well, no, it's not political. It's in the Bible. And, uh, and we have to deal with these things. So if you leave out social justice in your teaching and preaching, you're leaving out a huge portion uh, of the Bible. Um, but th- there's a reason kind of for that um, as far as why, why people, especially in the evangelical church, don't want to talk about social justice. And, and it, it goes back, it gets really, really deep in, in the history. But to kind of fast forward and summarize, um, around the turn of the century, the uh, 1900s, so the 20th century, um, there were some things going on in the theological realm uh, where people were questioning the Bible. Um, it's called textual criticism. It was mainly out of Europe, Germany, France, and places like that, and it was influencing Christianity across the world and even in the United States. And so then in the early 1900s, there was this move toward um, a reaction against that, uh, what was considered liberal theology, and a return to fundamentals of the faith. And so out of that, you have fundamentalism. And, of course, from fundamentalism, you have evangelicalism, all these isms coming out of that. Um, and a big emphasis in, um, in evangel- <laughs> evangelicalism, anyway, is personal salvation. And so in the 1900s, through the revivals in the United States, even the late 1800s, you had a couple of what we call great awakenings, which were revivals in the United States. There was this emphasis on personal salvation, personal evangelism, personal responsibility, and, uh, and that was the emphasis. And then by the turn of the century, then there was this kind of move where, well, we just got to get everybody saved. And the uh, social justice issues that the churches had, all, had been strong in started to decline a little bit, if, the, if that makes any sense. And so what you end up having then is this kind of schism within Christianity uh, in the United States, the evangelical church and the mainline churches, um, where the mainline churches were the evangelicals would criticize them for being social gospel. Uh, in other words, their emphasis was so much on, uh, on um, taking care of people's needs, feeding the poor and all that, but they weren't emphasizing personal conversion. And so to be, you know, when I was growing up, to be labeled a liberal or a, a social gospel person was, uh, was not a good thing. Um, and, then your, and then your more fundamental conservative evangelical churches emphasized personal salvation so the idea was kind of like if we just get enough people saved then society will change Uh, whereas the mainline denomination was no the kingdom of God is here we're to bring it into reality now and so let's emphasize the kingdom work uh, but maybe there was a de-emphasis on personal salvation so you had this split um, and really my argument is it's not one or the other it's it's both and Uh, people do need to make a personal commitment to Christ, but you cannot separate that personal commitment from, um, from the social realities that are going on where we have to get involved in that we are to bring the kingdom of God here now, even though the kingdom is both now and not present. We are to, we are to bring people to saving faith, but we're also to redeem the world, and, uh, and that involves um, bringing redemption and hope um, to the systems um, of our day and to uh, the issues that we face. Um, and I go back, and, and this sometimes makes people upset, and I don't mean to, to, to make them upset, but if you look at the teachings of Jesus, especially the sheep and the goats, which I go back to all the time, uh, that parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 is the only place where Jesus makes a clear distinction between who's in and who's out. You know, The sheep are in, the goats are out. So you're either going to heaven or hell uh, based on this parable of the sheep and the goats. And nowhere in that parable is there anything about a personal salvation encounter. You know, it's not in there. Nowhere does Jesus lead somebody through the sinner's prayer. But rather, it's all about taking care of the needs of the, of the people. You're visiting the sick, visiting the prisoner, welcoming the immigrant, uh, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, those kind of things. Then you're sheep. And so it's not that that personal salvation is not important. It is. Uh, but yet, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we emphasize one at the expense of the other, and we've got to emphasize both. Now, the, uh, the, the textual uh, criticism um, you, you also refer to it as higher criticism. Is that the same? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, am, am I understanding this correctly? Was textual criticism, did that come out of um, a view that we were neglecting our social responsibilities or was that independent of that and, and no, the result no, it, of it, it was? Yeah, 
know of anything with the, the it really didn't have anything. The, the churches, for the most part, um, early on, I mean, well, if you go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, there was this emphasis on meeting the needs. Acts chapter 2 says in the early church, you know, they were selling their goods and giving to those who had needs so that there was no need in the church. Right. Everybody, everybody's needs were met because of this shared corporate uh, mentality. What I, what I have is yours, and uh, how can I reach that? So much so that that was one of the reasons the Roman Empire started um, persecution on the Christians because they were messing up the social order of the day. You had this caste system, and uh, basically in the caste system, there was a reason why you were poor, and so there was no moral obligation for a wealthy person to help a poor person because there's a re- it's, it's, it's this caste system where the, where the early Christians were coming in and upsetting that and saying the poor are just as equal as the wealthy and, and we're, going to, um, we're going to help them. And so that, um, you know, anytime you start to mess with the economics of a country, you have a revolution on your hands. And so, and so the, the, um, there was hatred directed toward the Christians because they were caring for the poor. And then all throughout history you see um, that uh, that Christians would go into the prisons. Um, they were the ones who were who you know, like in in the days of the dungeons and all of that. If if the Christians, if the local churches weren't going in and feeding the prisoners, nobody was. Um, and so, and then it was the same way with uh, healthcare. And so, your early um, healthcare systems are, you know, St. Thomas uh, here here in Nashville or Baptist Hospital or or you know, and so they were Christians who were starting these things. Um, for that but then the higher criticism just kind of it what it did was it started questioning the supernatural aspects of the bible you know uh the miracles of the bible um and they really started questioning if the resurrection of christ is that a physical resurrection or is there some type of spiritual meaning behind that um and so it was just another way of looking at scripture well then the in in reaction to that then you had this move toward what was called the fundamentals of the faith, which is basically um, the virgin birth, um, you know, Jesus being God in the flesh, um, the miracles being real, um, the uh, the reality of heaven and hell, and the uh, physical, literal resurrection and the physical, literal return of Christ. Those are kind of just some of the fundamentals of the faith um, that people said, this is what we're going to hold on to. This is higher criticism is is devaluing the word of God. So then you have the inerrant, inerrancy of scripture, the infallibility of scripture, um, you know, that, which is really an interesting argument. Maybe we'll, one day we'll talk about it because, you know, the Bible is infallible and inerrant in its original. And we don't have those originals. You mean it wasn't written in English? <laughs> yeah. But the, the, this, <laughs> this whole argument about the Bible is inerrant and infallible in its, in its autographs, in its originals. But then we don't have those originals. And so, okay, what kind of argument is that? You know, is that really? Um, but that was part of the fundamentals of the faith. And then out of that was, well, you know, there, some people say that what happened was some people started trying to do some really hard social ministry things, um, like in Hell's Kitchen, uh, New York, and were not having success, or the problems were so major that it was like, we can't do this. And so then there became an emphasis on personal salvation because that works too hard uh, to do. And so if we can just get another people, enough people uh, saved, then that'll change culture. Um, when in reality, it doesn't matter if it's one person saved or a thousand people saved, our responsibility is still to change and influence culture uh, from that because God came to redeem the entire world to himself. And, uh, and so as a result of that emphasis on personal salvation, then it just became individualistic, which again goes back to secular society. Um, you know, again, back in Europe on the on the sociological philosophical side there was this move toward individualism um, because of the new economy moving from agriculture to industry things started to become individualized so so it's it's a web of how what's going on in society has affected the church instead of the church really affecting society yeah well in the book you uh you you talk about your personal experience on how things shifted where you began to have relationships, just personal relationships with people in the community that were outside of your normal group that didn't look like you, that didn't have the same upbringing as you, and how effective that was in kind of changing your perspective and your your empathy on that. And you've done a lot of work in the community. Um, What Can you kind of talk about the dance between the, the personal relationship with the person and then also your actions in the community and 
as a as a Christian, as a leader in the Christian community, how can a church kind of do that dance between how they treat the individual and yet how they reach the community? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, well growing up in a conservative Baptist church, we didn't dance, so I have a, <laughs> I have a hard time dancing. Bad analogy. <laughs> but um, you know, if I understand your question right, it's basically how do you balance this? Um, you know, personal evangelism with social justice, basically. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I don't really know if it's a balance. It's, it's just that's what you do, you know. And uh, I was brought up, like in evangelism, I was brought up and trained, and I'm very thankful for this because I know how to do it, but, I, you know, I, I was brought up trained going out in the neighborhood, going, you know, door-to-door soul winning, what they call it, where you would just knock on a door, and uh, whoever answered the door, um, then you went into your, uh, for lack of a better word, a sales pitch approach where you were trained to ask a question and based on what, uh, how they answered that question, then you had Bible verses or you would just go in whatever direction you needed to based on how the person asked the question with the goal at the end that you would lead them in the sinner's prayer where they would accept Christ um, you know, as their Savior. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for that. Um, and, but yet at the same time, looking back on it now, it, it was kind of like, well, that was really a, an odd approach because this person who you do not know and you've never met, uh, you're confronting them. Um, whereas in the Bible, what you see Jesus doing is is meeting the needs of people first. Um, and then out of those needs, um, the dialogue would start and then Jesus would you know, tell them, go and sin no more or, or, or whatever it was that would be basically their confession of faith uh, in Christ. And so, so then it becomes, okay, um, this person is hungry, this person needs help, this person is incarcerated, this person is homeless, I need to meet their physical need and, uh, and get to know them. And then out of, that, out of that, the questions are going to come up. You know, well, why are you doing this? Nobody else has done this for me. Why are you doing this? And instead of, well, I'm doing it because I'm trying to be a good humanitarian <laughs> or something like that, it's like, well, this is what Christ has called us to do. Can I tell you about Christ or or, um, you know, tell me what you know about Jesus. And, and you start the conversation, you start the conversation there. And so through, and so it's like, you know, you, you can either win a person to Christ, which is the, the terminology that's used that may not make sense to some of our listeners, but you win a person to Christ and then over time they start to influence their society or you just go about doing good. And out of that, people start asking you questions. And then because they, they have seen you do good, now you have an opportunity to tell them about Christ and win them to Christ that way. So it's just, it's just a, a different approach, but I think it's more the approach that Jesus would use where he, would, he didn't ask a person if they were a Christian or, of course, they, they wouldn't have been, but he didn't ask a person if they believed in him before he healed them. You know, he healed them. And then as a result of healing them, they would say, you are the son of God. You know, so it was meet that need first um, and let them see, um, you know, the love of Christ on display and then you, have a, then you have an opportunity to tell them about Christ. But then what you might find out is as you're ministering to them, especially in the South, they have a church background. They're, they were baptized as children. They, they prayed those prayers. Um, and so it's like, okay, you're a follower of Jesus. You've just gotten off track. Now let's help you get back you know, on track. Well, I know in the, um, just in the Franklin community here, you know, there's a, a plethora of churches. Every corner has, has a church, and there's different church responses. Is, do you think it's uh, appropriate or effective if a church says, well, that's not what we feel we're called to? Like, our, you know, our demographic may be, you know, this income level and this complexion of skin, and so we address these issues, but we really don't do that social justice part of it. We do international missions, but we don't really do... What would be your response to a church saying? Well, Again, it's not one or the other; it's both. Yeah. I mean, and I've run I've run into that, um, and uh, and I have realized um, to a great degree that the calling that God has given for me and on our church um, is different than other churches. We're all part of the body of Christ, and so I wish there was more of a partnership mentality um, going on. Okay, that's not your calling, but this is our calling. Um, but yet, at the same time. Uh, your calling as a local church is your Jerusalem first, your local community. And, uh, and when there are needs in your local community that you are over, overlooking because you're, you're doing things, good things elsewhere, uh, then, I, then the, I think there is uh, a time when you have to look at your priorities and, uh, and say, wait a minute, is that, 
you know, is that right? There was, uh, I mean, there have been instances more than one, so no one thinks I'm talking about them. There have been more than one instance where people have come to our church and, and uh, they said, well, we were going to another church, but we talked to a church leader um, and, and uh, told them kind of what we were looking for in a church, and their response was, well, that's Kevin's church. You know, so that makes me feel good. Oh, okay. But at the same time, it's like, well, wait a minute. This is all of our, you know, this is our calling as a body of Christ. But, but at the same time, um, human nature being what it is, um, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, in prison ministry they, or in prisons, they have what's called incompatibles where they have to keep certain people separate or else it always causes problems. Yeah. And so maybe in the church world, there are, there are incompatibles. And so if a church is really good at ministering this group of people, uh, then just by its very nature, they may not be good at ministering to this group of people. And it's not right or wrong. It's just the way it is. And so uh, the body, as the body of Christ, let's all work together so that everybody, every group of people is, is ministered to. So I don't, want, I don't want to let churches off the hook, but at the same time, I don't want to be sure. you know, overly judgmental because another church isn't doing things exactly like we are because we're not doing things exactly like they are either. So Yeah. Well, not to jump topics, but you yeah. know, in uh, uh, Chapter 9, you lay out some great questions on, and one of it was just pray about it. Ask God, what's your passion, and, and how is he going to use that? So. What are your What are your strengths? What's your passion? And really try and listen to what what God is calling you. Yeah. To do. Yeah. Well, let, let's look. Um, you know, at, at, in the beginning of the first chapter on this, I, I talk about social justice and I give some different definitions of social justice, and I think we covered that pretty well in the in the first podcast. But for sake of simplicity, the best definition of social justice is is the golden rule: doing to others as you'd have them doing to you. And if we would live our lives in that with that philosophy, uh, then we would. Uh, speak up for those who, who feel like they have no voice because we would want people to speak up for us. You know, I mean, if I was, if I was incarcerated, even if I was guilty, I would still want somebody speaking up for my uh, uh, basic rights. You know, of of health care or or um, you know, visitation rights or whatever it may be. And so, if I would want that when I while I'm in jail, then then I should be doing that for the person who's in jail. Or, you know, if I was homeless, I would want somebody still to take me in when they could on a cold night you know and and so that's how I want to be treated and that's how I got to treat other people but so that that's just kind of a a, a, a easy definition you know doing to others as you'd have them doing to you um, but you know this first part the first chapter that I deal with social justice in the book um, we talk about four groups of people the marginalized or the voiceless that the Old Testament and the New Testament both talk about um, and then and then in the Second chapter on social justice and evangelism, I talk about the systems. Um, and, but, and so let's look at those four groups of people first. Um, and uh, um, th- these are just in the Old Testament sometimes what we would consider the voiceless. These are the people who had no voice. These were the people who were on the margins of society. And, uh, and, and they had no social power. You know, they, they couldn't really do anything to change their situation. You know, we, we like to tell people they just need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps without realizing that some people don't even have that ability on their own. They just can't, they are completely powerless to change uh, the situation that, that they're in. And, uh, and so anyway, so the, the four groups include these, one is the widows and, um, and in G and in the old Testament, um, you know, this is where studying the original languages helps because in the, the, the Hebrew word for widow does not, mean only a person a lady who is married whose husband has died it could also be a lady whose husband has just abandoned her so the husband is just no longer in the picture that person would have been considered a widow as well and in that culture um, which is very male dominated um, if you were an unmarried adult woman you were extremely vulnerable in every situation and so, and so the Old Testament is very, very clear in the New Testament that we are to take care of the widows. Um, so we are to take care of these women who their husbands have died or they've just been abandoned and now they're just left, uh, they're left on their own because in that day they had no power. So, so the widows uh, were mentioned and, and oftentimes close, closely aligned with the widows was the orphans. And so they were always, you know, the widows and the orphans, the widows and the orphans. And again, if you look at the language, in our day and time, an orphan is someone who doesn't have any parents. But in the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew word, an orphan is just a fatherless child. 
And so again, it could be um, the, the child's father has died or the child's father has just abandoned the family. And so you have the widows and the orphans combined. And so as a church, we're com- and again, in history, in church history, it was Christian groups who started orphanages more often than not. Um, and so they saw that need and they went out there and they did something uh, about it. But if you broaden that um, to, um, to what it really means is that, okay, not only as a church do we need to help um, take care of, of um, kids who don't have any parents, um, and so adoption or, or, uh, or, or however that may take place, uh, but if the widow is just a woman whose husband has abandoned them and an and a orphan is a child whose dad has abandoned them and may not, be, may not be dead, just abandoned and not taking care of the family, then there's a call for the church to really step in and help single moms. And uh, sociologically speaking, uh, the biggest demographic of people in poverty are, are, are women and children. And so we can still see in our day and time that, that there is this correlation between, um, you know, if you're an unmarried woman um, or you're a single mom, the odds of living in poverty are greatly increased. And so part of, as a church then, okay, part of this social justice is what are we doing for the, for the single parents in our community? What are we doing for the widows in our community? What are we doing for the children who have no father figures uh, uh, in in their lives, how, how are we how are we stepping up as a church and uh, and really really uh, addressing those issues? And so that's the widows and the orphans, and then a third group of people that the Old Testament mentions are are the immigrants, uh, the sojourners, and um, you know and again we're in a world of controversy right now about what to do with the immigrants, and uh, nowhere in Scripture the Scripture. Um, define just take care of the legal immigrants. It just says the foreigner, the the sojourner, who who because you were once that way, and so um, you know, so as a church, we are to be on the side of the immigrant. We are to be welcoming to the to the people who are coming um, in our um, in our path. And I know there's got to be immigration laws and all that, but at the same time, as a church, look, you know, what are we doing in our community? Are we standing with the immigrant community when, when they are being attacked uh, or when they are being unjustly, um, you know, stopped and frisked or unjustly uh, scrutinized? Um, you know, are we willing to stand up and stand beside them and say, no, you can't do this. This is, it doesn't matter what their legal status is. Uh, the, this is a human rights violation by the way uh, that we're treating them, be it um, separating parents from children or just be it uh, letting um uh, the authorities go into a house and uh, and and pull somebody out because they want to, you know, they want to deport them. I mean, as a church, you know, are we willing to um, um, are we willing to open up our doors? And if you know, if we have a if we have a family in our church whose who um, whose legal standing is not uh, up to par, are we willing if the authorities come to stand in the way and become a sanctuary and say, no, you can't come in here. These are our church people. And uh, and you can't you, know, you you cannot bother them. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to stand with the immigrant in uh, in those um, in those difficult places uh, like that? And so and then you have the big word of, of just the poor, which would include a host of different uh, re- of people. But over and over again, the Bible is very very clear uh, about what we should do, uh, how we should take care of the poor. What's really interesting to me is there's a passage in Deuteronomy, <clears throat> um, and it's the passage Jesus quotes uh, on one time, and it's about how the Israelites are to take care of the poor. And at the beginning of the passage, it says, there should be no poor among you. you know, all right, and so if there's poverty in our community, then it's, uh, it's, it's, it sits, the blame sits at the feet of the people of God. You know? And so poverty is a sign of sinfulness, basically. That, and not the person who's poor, uh, but the society around it, if that, if that makes any sense. Because God said to his people, there should be no poor among you. All right? And then he goes on and he outlines some things. And then at the very end of that passage, he comes back and he says, the poor will always be with you. Yeah. So in the same passage, and that's the part that Jesus quoted, the poor, you always have the poor with you. And so in my own mind, I'm still trying to reconcile that passage because I think it's a powerful passage of, of, and it shows both 
God, God's perfect will. There should be no poor among you. And then the reality of we're, all, we're never living up to this standard. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to alleviate poverty. Uh, and basically the whole passage is built around the, the idea that you should not be closed-fisted uh, to yeah. the poor. You should, be, you should be more than generous um, you know, with, with the poor. But the scripture is clear that we are to take care uh, of the poor. It, it's just perfectly clear. And then, you know, if, if you read, uh, again, the, the, uh, some of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but also uh, the sheep and the goats in Acts chapter 2, man alive, it, come, it, it seems like he's, 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 uh, he, he's calling for some type of socialism, would be what we would say, where you sell what you have and give to the poor and you, and you do all this. And so, you know, again, in the church world, it comes, well, that's personal responsibility. You know, you, you can't make people do that. But at the same time, I'm like, well, but in the Old Testament, God's talking to the government. He's talking to the kings of Israel. When he says the reason Ezekiel makes, the, Ezekiel makes it clear that the reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing to do with homosexuality and everything to do with not taking care of the poor. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it's, it's like it's right there. Um, and, and he was talking to the nation of Israel as a whole of not taking care. And then somehow or another, we've, we've narrowed that down to its individual responsibility. When it looks like that God has judged in the past, he's judged countries for not taking care of the poor. Um, and so, he, you know, he'll do it again. Um, because he, he because he doesn't change, and so those are the voiceless. Now, to us in our in our day, you could add to that list. I mean, those four those were representative of the voiceless in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and so you had you know widows, which would include single moms, um, orphans, um, the immigrant, and the poor. But if you think about it, in our society, who is it that ha- does not have power? Who is it that um, has no one really speaking for them? Well, you have the, the Native Americans who, who have no one speaking for them um, and the abuse that was done to them by our country and by the churches. You know, I, I know you're familiar with, with your background, uh, the religious schools and the horror that, that uh, the Native children went through uh, on behalf of religious, of religious schools. Um, and, so, and so you could add that group there, that this particular ethnic group um, is still voiceless and other minorities in our in our community. But then, at least at one time, people, you know, I'm old enough to remember, I remember exactly where I was when the news came across that Magic Johnson had AIDS. And all of a sudden, so now the people with, with that disease were, you can't touch them, you stay away. And so, and so people with certain sicknesses still today, certain diseases would still be, you know, like today. Um, there's an article in the paper with this coronavirus, right. and, uh, and they were going to send, what, maybe 14 U.S. citizens who were on this one cruise ship, uh, and they have to be quarantined for two more weeks. They were going to send them to a quarantine building in Alabama, and the state of Alabama fought against that. I saw that. Yeah. Like, what? How can you, you know, the, you're turning your back on your fellow man, and, and they're in the South, so a lot of them would be, good Christian people, uh, but now this fear is like, well, no, we're to take care of the poor, and, and now, you know, people with this particular um, <clears throat> sickness right now, you know, so it's like, okay, that's, they're that way. Um, the incarcerated, the felons, you know, people with felonies, they come out of, out of prison, the unemployment rate among felons is over 80%, um, and so it's like, okay, that, that's part of that voiceless group. Uh, and so basically, if you, if you wind it all down, what the, what the Bible says is, as followers of Jesus, we are to not speak up for, but, but we are to speak with these people who have no voice and give them their voice. Um, you know, the, the idea I'm going to speak up for these people is kind of um, domineering. You know, it's paternal. You don't have a voice, so I'm going to speak for you. Whereas what we need to do is walk alongside people who don't have a voice and help them and speak with them in partnership with them instead of just instead of just uh, you know speaking for them if that if that makes any sense. So those are the four groups of people, and uh, and it's part of evangelism um, because evangelism and the way I define it in the book is is the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God becomes a reality through faith in Jesus Christ, um, and so where Jesus is, there is the kingdom, and so I'm I am now to be uh, building the kingdom while I wait for the kingdom to appear. <clears throat> the now and not yet of the kingdom. 
Um, and so when I'm standing up and speaking with and fighting for the rights of these people, I'm, I'm telling the world this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is a snapshot of, of what will be perfected when Christ returns. There will be no more poor. There will be uh, no more voiceless. There won't be the widows and the orphans and all of that. Um, but I want to see a picture of that now. And so I'm bringing the kingdom of God to that into reality now while I'm waiting for the kingdom of God to come in fulfillment when Christ, uh, when Christ returns. So I'm proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. And uh, that's what evangelism is. Uh, the good news is the Greek word evangelism. So repent, you know, the kingdom of God is here. Here's what it looks like. Now repent and believe the good news. And so that's, that's the evangelism component of it. Yeah. Well, what I'm kind of hearing is you referenced the, the scripture where God says, uh, there should be no poor among you, and then goes on later to say there will always be the, the poor. And, and now kind of in, through personal experience in life, I hear that and, and hear, well, I, I'm giving you all the resources to take care of everybody, yet people are not going to handle those resources appropriately and responsibly therefore there will always be the poor yeah that's a good way to see it because the other way that the churches have interpreted that uh, unfortunately is since the poor will always be with you i don't really need to spend a lot of time dealing with it yeah well i I probably would have thought that years ago yeah just life has kicked me around a bit enough and met some people enough that i go okay it's the resources are all there Mm mm-hmm we're just greedy and selfish and irresponsible, and therefore they will always be there, but there was a design to it. And We talked about the, the four uh, people groups. Um, when we come back from the break here, we're going to jump into four systems, right? Right. So let's take a little break, hear from our sponsor, and when we come back we'll talk about four systems in, in our world that can be uh, changed through social justice. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at 2nd and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of 2nd and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. All right, we are back here with the Floods of Justice and Pastor Kevin here. Um, We are discussing his book, Evangelism for the 21st Century, Um, in particular two chapters out of that book. We've just been discussing chapter 8, and uh, we're going to jump into chapter 9 here in a second. Uh, But just to to reiterate, you can get this book on Amazon. You can download for Kindle uh, if you'd like an autographed copy. Uh, Pastor Kevin would be happy to, to get one of those for you. It's an excellent, excellent book. Um, and uh, so let's, uh, let's go to chapter 9 here and talk about the systems. Yeah, again, the, these two chapters, um, uh, the, when the publisher asked me to write this book, it was really because they wanted this emphasis on social justice. Um, and so the two chapters are, you know, the, are very creatively titled Evangelism and Social Justice Part 1. And then evangelism and social justice part two. So, uh, so that's about as creative as I can get uh, with, with the titles. And so the, in part one, it was these four groups of people. Um, and, uh, and then in part two, I just kind of look at, just to keep it simple, four groups of people, now four systems that the Bible does discuss. Um, and, uh, and that these systems, uh, when they are controlled, and they always are controlled by the people who, who have power in that culture, uh, but, but these systems have been used by people in power to abuse um, the most vulnerable among us. That's basically how it goes. But I want to read. I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence. But, uh, but here's how chapter 9 starts. And let me just, just read this because uh, um, it starts off with an interesting question that sometimes throws people off. But anyway, so here it goes. How would you define sodomy? Uh, I'll bet your definition is drastically different from God's. Without a doubt, the Old Testament city of Sodom was an immoral and deserving of her judgment sent by God. Genesis Genesis records, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see um, if what they have done is as bad 
as the outcry that has reached me. So what was Sodom's, what was Sodom's grievous sin? Well, there's an interesting story in Jewish folklore about Pelatith, one of Lot's daughters. According to the story, Pelatith married a high-ranking official of Sodom. Every day when Pelatith would go draw water, she saw a poor man sitting by the well. She had compassion on the man and started sneaking him provisions from her house. The men of Sodom began to wonder how the poor man was surviving, and when they investigated the matter, they discovered Pelatith had been taking care of him. Angry at her compassion, the men had Pelatith burned by fire. Before she died, Pelatith prayed, and I quote, Sovereign of all the worlds, maintain my right and my cause at the hands of the men of Sodom. According to the story, her prayer was the outcry God heard that caused him to act against Sodom. The rest of the Bible, of the biblical story, is full of depraved behavior by, men, by the men of Sodom. But as sinful as, as that depraved behavior was, it was not their worst grievous sin. The prophet Ezekiel clearly explains Sodom's sin when he says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And that's Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. And so sodomy, at least partially, could be defined as the absence of social justice in the community. Sodomy, however it is defined, is a grievous violation against the character of God. And so, um, you know, earlier in the podcast I referenced that, so I just thought I would read uh, what Ezekiel says about, um, about what really happened at Sodom and, and Gomorrah and why, and why God destroyed uh, them. I thought it was a great opening to a chapter. I thought I, this is almost a great teaser before you even do the intro to the podcast. And, you know, the relevance, the shocking nature of it. Correct me, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounds like it's almost, um, are you a sheep or a sodomite? You know, and the drastic, because, you know, we're not in a, we're in, it's 2020 in America. Nobody's really a shepherd over here, right. or there are very few are shepherds. This, this idea of sheep and goats may be a little bit foreign to us, yeah. but are you a sheep or are you a sodomite? Boom. That yeah, kind of opens that your ears and goes, oh, uh, squ- excuse me? Excuse what? me? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, to be fair, Jude, the little letter of Jude in the Old Testament also talks about um, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the emphasis of Jude is their immorality. Um, and so it wasn't, again, that it was one or the other, it was both, but but what's interesting is Ezekiel's prophecy is very, very clear um, that uh, the grievous sin of, of Sodom was neglecting the poor, not what we traditionally attribute uh, to it. Uh, you know, but, uh, so just to bring a little balance, Jude, sure. Jude kind of throws the other side uh, on there. All right, I, I know somebody might would write me a letter and say, yeah, but what about Jude? So there you go. I just, okay. I just, uh, I just answered that, all right? Um, but anyway, so, so we're to be bringing about the kingdom of God. Jesus prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so while we wait for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled when Christ returns, Christ brought the kingdom of God with him when he came the first time. So we're in this, the kingdom is both now and not yet time period where we are to be bringing the kingdom of God into reality. Uh, I had a friend who I was describing this to said, well, it sounds like what you're talking about is snapshots. And so when we when we feed the poor, that's a snapshot of the kingdom of God. Not yet the reality, but it's a snapshot. So when we, you know, when we take care of the homeless, that's a snapshot of, uh, of the kingdom of God. Um, and so, but yet there are these systems um, that can come into play um, that really can keep people down. Okay, And so uh, these are broad categories, but just to keep with the theme of four. Right, so th- there are four systems that uh, can, be a u- can be used by the people in power to keep the vulnerable down. Uh, and so they can be abused in, in that way. And those, and those four systems, and the Bible addresses all four of these, are economics, equality, environment, and then the sanctity of life. And so, and so let's look at the economics first. Um, I say this in the book, but there are basically two world economic systems, capitalism and socialism. And those are economic systems before they're, before they're anything else. Um, and, and so, you know, socialism doesn't have to be communism. Communism is a governmental system, but, but we throw that word 
socialism around conservatives doing way to scare people. You, know, you don't want to be socialistic when in reality there's really no economic system that is purely capitalism or purely socialism. Every economic system in the world is a combination of those two. And so we're a capitalistic society with socialistic tendencies. Basically is what we are in the United States. And so the question is not, do you want to be a socialistic country? The question is, how much socialism do you want? Because we already have some. And, uh, and so it's just, because, and both those things to an extreme would be cruel. Capitalism to an extreme is extremely cruel. Um, because it really is, just take as much as you want and don't worry about anybody else. Now, now you know, people who love capitalism aren't going to say that, but that's left on its own without regulation, without uh, checks and balances. Capitalism can be as cruel as socialism can be, which in its extreme form does become, uh, does become communism. And so, uh, and so we're just this combination of the two. And nowhere does the Bible say capitalism is right, socialism is wrong, or socialism is right, capitalism is wrong. Nowhere. The Bible just says take care of the poor. You know, work, work um, but don't hoard what you have. Don't be close-fisted. Be willing to share. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, if you're poor and you can work, work. The idea of gleaning in the Old Testament is really a, a, a good picture where I'm growing my crops, but I'm supposed to leave crops around the edges for the poor. But I don't pick it for the poor. The poor come and pick it themselves. So, so there's, there's work involved uh, for that. But then those who can't work, uh, then I am responsible to help. Um, if they can't uh, work either because they can't find a job or because of a disability or, or um, you know, because of age. Um, you know, it's like, it's been a long time since I read this quote, but I think it's upwards of around 70% of people on welfare in the United States are people who cannot work either because of age or disability. You know, I mean, a lot of children are on welfare where they can't get a job. And then you have a lot of elderly people on welfare. And obviously they can't get a job either. And so this idea is everybody on welfare needs to go get a job. It's just not, it's just not true yeah. <laughs> because there's, there's, that big, there's that big portion. But here are some of the things uh, that the Bible says um, when it comes to economics. In Proverbs 19:17, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, re- he will reward him for what he has done. Uh, Proverbs 22:16, he who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth, and he who gives gifts to the rich both come to poverty. So look at that. If you give gifts to the rich, so if the tax breaks all go to the rich and take away from the poor, then the economic system is messed up, uh, basically. Um, Proverbs twenty twenty three: the Lord detests differing weights, you know, and dishonest scales do not please him. So, so if you're charging, you know, like, like it, it makes no sense to me if I go to a, a a restaurant for a nice night out, uh, let's say, you know, a restaurant in town that maybe for my wife and I, the two of us, the bill's going to be in excess of $100, which we never go to unless somebody gives us a gift card, right? So I go, and I, and I, have, to, I'm, I have to pay $100 to eat there. But then a, a movie star or an athlete comes in, and because he's an athlete and they, they, want, they want to put his picture on their restaurant on Facebook, they give him a free meal. I'm like, well, wait a minute, he can afford it. So you're charging, you're, you have a, that's differing weights. You, you have a different scale. Or, um, you know, if I'm wealthy and I go to the hospital for a test procedure, I can pay cash for it and get charged less than if I'm middle class or lower class and I go to a, rest, to a hospital for tests and I, have to, and I have to file insurance and pay my deductible and then the insurance company charges me more. So we still have differing weights you know, in our economy that, that I, I think some people don't realize. And the Bible says the Lord detests that. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And so there's, that's about greed. Deuteronomy 23.19, do not change your brother's, um, do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. And then 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so it's not necessarily money, but the love of it and wanting to make more and more. So the Bible it speaks very, very clearly about having an honest and just economic system. And, uh, and we don't. I mean, if you go back to the differing weights, um, kind of like the more money you have, the lower interest you get charged. You know, and the less money you have, the higher your interest is, uh, which makes what? Yeah. You, you know, so you're... You're making things even more difficult on the people who already don't have. 
uh, from that. And the Bible says the Lord detests that. Um, we don't detest it, but the Lord, you know, the Lord detests it. So economics, um, equality is just that. I put equality there because that just goes about uh, and it, a whole bunch of system from the healthcare system to the education system um, to uh, the again to economics. Just equality, equality across the board. The Bible, the Bible uh, speaks uh, against syst- or speaks for systematic inequality is all around us. It can be seen in the pay scale of women. What I think the stat and it's been the stat forever: a woman makes about eighty cents for every dollar a man makes doing the exact same job. Well, there's a, that's, that's a problem, and you could look, there's, there's an inequality on pay scale when it comes to um, 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 race as well, but, but women is the one that, that gets a lot of attention right now. Um, inequality can be seen in how we treat or mistreat our elderly or disabled or, or homosexuals. There's inequality in the classroom and in, and in, and in the courtroom. Um, there's even inequality in our churches at the core of many of our social institutions is inequality. The Bible makes it clear that people, regardless of race, gender, race, ethnicity, age, disability, class, or any other characteristic, are to be treated fairly, equitably, and as people created in the image of God. And so here's just some of what the Bible says uh, about that. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him, and do what is right, Acts 10, 34 through 35. Um, I say this somewhat sarcastically, but I think people are going to be surprised when they get to heaven and see Jesus uh, as being a person of color uh, instead of a, a, a white European. That's going to throw them back a little bit, uh, you know, f- uh, from that. And, but yet God accepts all people of, of ethnicities, and just simply because of where Jesus was born and raised, we should have an idea of what his ethnicity uh, was. Um, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so it should be very, very clear um, that as believers we are to stand up uh, against racism. And so... Uh, you know, some people ask why as a pastor I was involved in what we call here in Franklin the Fuller story or why now I'm involved in trying to get a bust removed from the Capitol in downtown Nashville. Well, because this is, it's an equality thing. Um, racism is wrong. White supremacy is wrong. And these symbols that we have in our community that, um, that highlight and honor uh, those kind of things, they, they need to be moved. They don't need to be in our public, they don't need to be in our public square. Uh, and so it's a spiritual issue. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to speak into that, uh, from that. And so economics, equality, uh, the environment, um, the Bible makes that clear. You and I are scuba divers, and I use the illustration there of no matter where I've ever gone diving, on, and no matter how deep I'm on the ocean floor, you see a Pepsi can, <laughs> you know, or you read... Um, stories about the Great Barrier Reef in Australia being uh, destroyed, um, and uh, or you know the bumblebees dying, or the, and if that ever happens, then we're all in trouble. Uh, and so you see the, and so now we got this huge thing of of uh, global warming. Is it a hoax or is it real? And there's scientists on both sides, but unfortunately, most conservative Christians are on the side of it's not real. You know, and and part of that is because um, you know our our eschatology, which is the doctrine of end things. Our eschatology makes us bad environmentalists because, you know, there's a segment of evangelical belief that says the world is going to burn anyway. The world is going to be destroyed and God's going to create a new heaven and new earth. So why should I care about, about this one? Because it's coming to an end anyway. When the prophecy about the world burning may be the prophecy of us not taking care of it. <laughs> you know, and, and so it didn't have to happen, but it did happen because we weren't good environmentalists. And back in Genesis the Bible, I mean, but you know, God said to Adam, "Take care of it." You know, you're you're to be the steward, you're to be the manager uh, of of uh, of creation. And uh, recently, there's been some uh, again in the news. They showed photographs of what Nashville used to look like in the '70s compared to now, um, and the air quality, how much better it is. And so, I was like, yeah, I remember those days when, <laughs> it, you know, the the smog in Nashville looked a certain way. Now you don't, you know, now you don't see that. 
or I go to Honduras uh, where they have raped hillsides for logging without any type of regulations, and now it's polluted the streams and everything. Uh, and then I come back to the States, and I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of glad we have these regulations that say you cannot, uh, you know, you cannot overlog, you cannot overfish, you have to uh, have these regulations in place or else the natural greed of man will destroy uh, everything. And so as a Christian, how can I, um, how do I speak into that? I, we, you know, we got, we got a letter I don't know how many people listen from Franklin, but we got a letter uh, this week from the city of Franklin talking about how uh, in 2019 there was a certain water quality issue in the water we've been drinking. And they said, now don't worry about it, <laughs> but we got to let you know that, that it exceeded the acceptable amounts from the government of whatever toxin it was. Uh, you know, and it said, you do not have to boil your water at this time. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, it, it, at certain levels, whatever was in our water uh, could cause all these different uh, diseases. And so it's like, I, haven't, I, I threw the letter away, said, okay, they don't boil the water. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, wait a minute, what are we doing? We don't even have clean water in Franklin. And then, of course, it comes to the clean water issue in Flint, Michigan that yeah. still hasn't been addressed, uh, you know, from that. And so, and so we're called to take care of, uh, of, of the environment. Now, what does that look like? Well, I'm not quite sure yet. I'm not sure if I'm ready to handcuff myself to a tree. But at the same time, I do want to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You cannot, um, you cannot um, pollute the streams. You cannot um, just cut down trees to be cutting them down. You cannot overfish. You cannot overhunt. You cannot, you know, there has to be this, this balance because we're called to be managers of, uh, of creation. And then the sanctity of life. Um, and I, I put the sanctity of life instead of just pro-life because, uh, again, it, it's pro-life, unfortunately, just means uh, anti-abortion and anti-euthanasia. And that's pretty much all it means. Uh, whereas the sanctity of life means, no, 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 from the womb to the tomb, um, the innocent and the guilty, all of life is sacred. So the, the fetus uh, in a womb is sacred, but so is that guy on death row. His life is sacred as well. Um, and and all everywhere in between, and so um, what I try to do is to be as consistent as I can in the sanctity of life, uh, and so to me that means um, that that involves not you know um, not only speaking out about abortion uh, and the death penalty those two extremes, but I think there's a place for healthcare discussions in the sanctity of life. I, I believe healthcare is a right, um, not a not you know a privilege. You know, if, if people are sick, we got to take care of them regardless of if they, you know, nowhere did Jesus, before he healed someone, ask what their copay was. You know, he just, you need, you're sick, you need healing, let's, let's take care of it. And so I think, uh, I think immigration rights fall in that category. Um, I think war, I tell people I'm a wannabe pacifist, you know. Um, like I, I, I see where that comes from. The early Christians were all uh, pacifist. Um, and I want to be that way, uh, but yet, you know, there's Hitler. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I, okay, but but the wars that I see that we get involved in in my lifetime have been unjust. Um, and so, you know, the sanctity of life just in, means speaking out on life issues across the board, um, not just not just pro, not just being uh, against abortion. Um, and uh, you know, if you're, and to me, I, it doesn't make any sense to me if. Okay, how can you be against abortion, but then also against universal health care? You know, because the, it, what's been shown, the way to cut down on abortion is to provide health care. Um, and, you know, and to provide, um, you know, contra free contraceptives and those kind of things so that, you, so that you don't have the unwanted pregnancy. But to say, um, you know, no, 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 I want to be against abortion and I don't want anybody getting any free stuff. Uh, it's like, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense. You've got to... You got you got to have that balance uh, on that, and so and so the sanctity of life um, comes into play. And then, you know, I, there's a lot more in the chapter, but I, you know, maybe we can close with this: What's the government's role in all this? Right? You know, sometimes I hear that. Well, it's not the government's role; it's the church's job. And I say, yes, you're right; it's the church's job. But the churches aren't doing this. And so, what what I describe is is uh, you know micro macro level. And at the micro level, that's our responsibility. 
but the macro level is the government's responsibility. So here's, here's what I mean by that. I can have somebody come to my church who needs help with housing, and they're working hard. Um, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can, but they just, there's no affordable housing. And so, and so as a church, we can collectively come around them. We can try to solve that problem for that one family. Uh, but I can't do anything about the laws that, that, um, um, that need to be addressed so that there is affordable housing for everyone. That's, the government has to do that, you know. Or um, I can, this family that's about to get evicted from an apartment, I can come in micro level and assist them. Uh, but yet I need government laws and regulation that, that give renters rights and that you just can't evict them for anything um, and there's a process, there's a due process that you have to go through. I can't set those laws. So, th- so the government has this, has on one level this macro responsibility to make sure that the laws are just and fair to everyone. And then the micro level, we, uh, our church and other churches, we can help individuals navigate through that. But the government, so there's a role for the government at the macro level. And then at the micro level, I think, is where the churches and God's people come in and, and help address all right. Well, to, to kind of wrap things up for today, we've we've talked about the uh, the four groups of people uh, that we can minister to in the first half of the podcast. The second half of the podcast focused on systems. Uh, as we go forward in this week, can you maybe give us two items uh, that we can positively affect and minister the individuals in a social justice realm, and then two items that we can affect uh, in a in a systemic way to petition the government to to really help people out. Yeah, well, maybe a few things that, that come to mind. One is, you know, write this down if you can't remember it, although it's easy to remember. Um, but um, the number's 211. Um, you know, if there's an emergency, we know to call 911. Uh, but 211 is a number uh, that was set up years ago by the United Way. And uh, that if you have any type of, uh, of social needs, so like if you yourself or if somebody comes to you, um, and it could, it could be a homeless person or it could, or it could be something even as serious su- as suicide and you're not sh- sure what to do, you call 211 and tell them what's going on and then they have the database in front of them based on your zip code of who and what organization in your area can help with that need. And so it's kind of a one-stop shopping kind of thing. So if you don't know what to do or where to send someone, start with 211. And, uh, and then they can direct you in that. But then uh, maybe on the, on the heels of that, just start your own database collection of, of okay, who in my community um, helps, what organization, what churches help in these different areas. So if somebody is poor, they're homeless, who do I contact? If somebody just needs help with their utility bill, uh, who, who and what are some organizations that will help that? And if you can keep that in your telephone, your cell phone, and just have that information on hand, that will, uh, that will help you. Uh, one thing, I've, I've done this a few times and challenged people is, you know, take $20 and just put it in your pocket and just pray. And say, okay, God, send somebody uh, across my path who needs this. And just see what happens. You know, and just wait. It may be today. It may be a few days down the road. But, uh, but just wait and see what God does. You know, you want to bless somebody with this. Now just wait and see what God does. And, and I think you'll be surprised to see what may happen, what, who God may bring uh, into your life. It's really interesting to me in our ministry, some people will call and they have things they want to donate to me. And so, you know, like somebody will call and say, hey, I got an old washer and dryer. I got a new washer and dryer. Can you use this washer and dryer? And I'm like, you know what? I don't know of anybody right now who needs one, but let me come get it because what this means is somebody's going to need this. And it's amazing how within a couple of weeks, somebody out of the blue, Pastor, my washer and dryer went down. Do you know where I can get a new, where I can get one? And it's like, well, you're not going to believe this, but two weeks ago, somebody gave me, you know, a washer and dryer. And so, um, and so that's kind of the idea with that twenty dollars. Just hang on to it and see, and see what God does or who or who He brings um, into your life. Um, when it comes to the systems, um, you know, if there's an organization in your town that, uh, like I, I use the Harpeth. Water, the Harpeth River watershed, a lot of times as an example. Get involved in that environmental organization in your local community. Or, and I'm speaking to myself now, our city just started a new recycling program. We haven't yet signed up for that, but we need to. And so it might be, okay, that's a practical step. I want to start recycling uh, because Jesus has told me to take care of the environment. And here's the thing. If you start recycling, 
and you have that blue container or whatever container it is in front of your house, like in our city, if somebody asks you, why are you recycling? Tell them, well, it's because Jesus has asked us to take care of the environment. That's evangelism. That's the open door now to share your faith and to give reason for the hope uh, that, that you have. And so, um, and so you can do that. Or you could write letters to your congressman um, in support of, uh, of raising the minimum wage to something or in support of um, expanding Medicaid or Medicare um, and those kind of things. But get involved and petition um, <clears throat> the government for the changes that you want to see uh, happen. So those are some practical steps. And, you know, get my book. That's a practical step. <laughs> there you go. Step one. <laughs> step, step one. Step one is right. start with the basics. Yeah, start with the basics there. And subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends and give us a good review. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you for joining us for episode five of the Floods of Justice. A uh, little teaser on next episode. Do you know what we're going to talk about? <clears throat> yeah, uh, Luis Sora, who's our associate pastor and uh, heads a uh, uh, what we call Jeremiah 29-7 program. And then he has his own ministry, mainly to Hispanics, called uh, Better Options. We're headed down to El Paso uh, Wednesday and uh, for a conference on immigration, be touring the border, uh, crossing the border into Mexico and looking at some things. Uh, this is through uh, CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. And so we're going to try to call in probably late Friday night and uh, do a podcast over the phone kind of get our initial feelings after spending a few days down there. So the next podcast will be um, about immigration, and hopefully if it works out well, we'll be talking to you from the border. Excellent. All right, exciting times. Uh, have a great week. If you have any questions, comments, uh, tune in online, floodsofjustice.com, or you can tweet Pastor Kevin at uh, Riggs underscore Kevin on Twitter. Um, other than that, we will see you on the next episode. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.